Hi everyone, Drew Road here. Today we have a deeply fascinating interview with board certified neurologist, Dr. David Perlmutter, who's one of the top docs in the world, in the world when it comes to understanding our brains and the impact that our lifestyle has on them. Did you know that for the most part, Alzheimer's is a preventable disease and that its first markers of what will eventually become the disease can show up 10, 20, 30 years before the disease fully manifests. In today's podcast, we talk all about this idea that we don't have to wait to be diagnosed with a disease to do something about it. We can take measures today, today, right now, to truly take our health back into our own hands and prevent disease from happening in the future. In today's podcast, Dr. Perlmutter and I also talk about the latest scientific research on what works and doesn't work for the brain, the impact of fats on our gene pathways, and what Dr. Perlmutter eats on a typical day. What does he eat? We're all curious. He walks us through it step by step. You're going to dig this interview, and I just want to share that I'm grateful for you taking the time to listen. I know you took time in your day to be here, and I so appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Okay, now on to my formal intro for Dr. David Perlmutter. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. This podcast is dedicated to continuing the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the Broken Brain series. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live your best life. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. David Perlmutter. Dr. Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist and four-time New York Times bestselling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. Dr. Perlmutter received his MD degree from the University of Miami School of Medicine, where he was awarded the Leonard G. Roundtree Research Award. He serves as a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and has published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including Archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and the Journal of Applied Nutrition. In addition, he's a frequent lecturer at symposia sponsored by institutions such as the World Bank and IMF, Columbia University, Scripps Institute, New York University, and Harvard University, and serves as an associate professor of the University of Miami School of Medicine. His books have been published in 34 languages and include the number one New York Times bestseller, Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, with over 1 million copies in print. He's the editor of upcoming collection of The Microbiome and Brain that will be authored by top experts in the field and will be published in 2019 by CR Press. Dr. Perlmutter, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Well, Drew, I am so delighted to be with you today. And thank you for being in the series. You were definitely one of the stars of the series, and you really blew people's mind with your interview that you had with Dr. Hyman. And I think that thing that is, you've been doing this for such a long time. You've been talking about how the body and brain are connected for so long. Do you feel a little bit astonished at where the world is now and the conversations that are happening? I mean, you have a journal coming out, upcoming collection coming out called Microbiome in the Brain. Did you think when you first got started in your career and you were talking about this, that any of this was going to happen? Well, I think the first part of your question is, am I astonished in terms of where we are today? And I can answer that question in two ways. First, and I'll end this on a positive note, but on the negative note, I'm certainly astonished that you know, while we talk about the importance of lifestyle factors and changing lifestyle, leveraging lifestyle to pave the way for a healthier brain, by and large, the world has not embraced that narrative. And it's very, very distressing to see that. 
But again, I think we should focus on lighting the candle and not curse the darkness. But, you know, when the World Health Organization tells us that chronic degenerative conditions are now the number one cause of death on the planet and that we all understand that by and large these chronic conditions, degenerative conditions like Alzheimer's, for example, are a consequence of our choices, uh, those two important facts have to be brought together, i.e., we can change our destiny by making better choices. And to answer the other part of the question, I don't think any of us 10 years ago could have foreseen the incredible explosion of medical research and data that has evolved that correlate events going on within the gut with the health and functionality of the human brain. That is a blessing because it really has opened up a whole new playing field for us, especially in neurology where our options have been so very limited over the years in terms of what we could do to help out the situation. Having said that, some of us are very excited about this and live and breathe for the next journal to come out. Uh, by and large, the impact this is having on how mainstream neurologists perceive the, the relationship is actually very, very minimal. There's this theory that change <laughs> happens by focusing on the youthful minded, not just young people, but people that are open minded. Do you feel like part of the goal is to convince people who are completely on the other side of the fence who is our energy best used trying to convince them is our energy best used on talking to the open-minded do you have any thoughts on sort of how this change proliferates because you have your foot both firmly planted in the world of research but then also you have to do this ton of like direct to consumer education of the population and i get so excited because i see people posting your quotes on instagram talking about your books i see this sort of revolution happening of course we all live in a little bit of a bubble but I see young people especially and youthful-minded people, people of any age are just open-minded, just embracing the things that you talk about all the time. So just again, any thoughts on change? Well, sure. What is set up is a real uh, paradigmatic challenge, meaning that uh, on the one hand is the paradigm uh, that has been you know, generally accepted, the operating system of live your life come what may, and modern medicine and science is going to create a pill to fix your ails, that my generation, and certainly my parents' generation, it was inculcated into their brains as be the good patient and we'll take care of things. You know, and you really bring to our attention the notion that younger, more able to acquire information generation, so this is the information generation, really is beginning to see the other side of the story, the dirty little secret that, in fact, there is absolutely no pharmaceutical intervention that is of any benefit as it relates, in this case, to Alzheimer's disease. That's a statement of fact made by our most well-respected uh, researchers in our most well-respected reviewed journals. There is no treatment for Alzheimer's disease. That said, you know, to this day, when people are beginning to see uh, evidence of cognitive impairment, they go to the doctor and hope for the best. They're put on a medication. As mentioned, even written in the Journal of Neurology, those drugs don't work. So that said, we do know that, A, for the most part, Alzheimer's is a preventable disease. This is a disease costing Americans $230 billion, affecting 5.4 million of us, that is dramatically exploding in terms of uh, its incidence and prevalence globally. And yet, you know, the notion that our 
lifestyle choices are not relevant is it does take my breath away. You know, it's all about living a life that is less inflammatory. And that certainly transcends our narrative as it relates to uh, Alzheimer's, but involves Parkinson's, it involves coronary artery disease, diabetes, and cancer, and all of the chronic degenerative conditions. And, you know, what really is so very important, and I think sort of stands in our way of getting this information to really have traction, is the timetable that this is effective over. For example, you tell somebody, wear your seatbelt, that'll be good for you. They get in a car accident, they're wearing their seatbelt, and they say, hey, I get it. That worked. Yesterday, I was in that accident. It worked. But the inflammation issues that are relevant in terms of causing the brain to degenerate or narrowing the coronary arteries, these are issues that are beginning to take shape 10, 20, 30 years prior to actual disease manifestation. And therefore, it makes it very challenging for the consumer to connect those dots. Let me give you an example. Uh, last year in the journal Neurology, which is arguably one of our most well-respected neurology journals on the planet, peer-reviewed, there was an interesting study that was published and it measured in a group of several thousand individuals who were in their 40s and 50s at the time, it measured markers in their blood of inflammation. And the study then came back and looked at the same group of individuals 24 years later. The study, again, was just published. And what it found was really quite remarkable. There was this very direct relationship between risk for developing Alzheimer's disease and having had higher measurement of blood inflammatory markers 24 years ago. So what does it say? It says that if you have elevated markers of inflammation in your blood today, you are setting the stage for Alzheimer's years from now. And so that your lifestyle choices today, uh, whether you choose to eat low carb, high carb, high fat, low fat, whether you choose sedentarity versus physical activity, the amount of sleep that you get, and hopefully that is restorative, the amount of stress in your life, et cetera, these are all extremely important variables over which you have control that clearly are connected to your brain's destiny. This is not live your life come what may and we have a pill for you if you're suddenly cognitively impaired. It is the other story. The story is that you make lifestyle choices today that will dramatically impact how your brain works two, three decades from now. So somebody's 65 years old, they get diagnosed with Alzheimer's, you know, we're thinking about what was going on in their life at the age of 40, at the age of 30. You and bet. Let's break, it, break it down into a more practical level. Let's talk about some of those categories just on that topic of Alzheimer's because people are listening here that might be 25, 30, 40, 50 years old, any age, and they're thinking about Alzheimer's, they're thinking about their brain health. Let's run through a few of the categories that we know play a role when it comes to those inflammatory markers that might increase that uh, risk. Can you take us through a few things that are happening in our lifestyle that we have control over that can impact that likelihood from increasing or decreasing? Without a doubt. What a, what a great place for you and me to be at this point in our discussion, because we are now going to enumerate the keys to the kingdom. First step is you've got to be on a lower sugar, lower carbohydrate diet. 
we've got to control blood sugar. That is fundamental as it relates to the process of inflammation. Dr. Rosebud Roberts, what a cool name, writing in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, uh, published a paper. She's at the Mayo Clinic. And the paper looked at what people eat versus their risk for becoming demented. And what did they find? They found that those individuals whose diets were higher in fat, who favored fat as a calorie source, had a 46% lower risk for developing Alzheimer's, a disease for which there is no treatment. Those whose diets were higher in carbohydrates had an 83% increased risk for developing Alzheimer's. That's huge. Writing in the New England Journal of Medicine in either September or October 2013, I forget which, was a study of several thousand individuals over a 6.5-year period of time. And what they did was they did a very, very extensive evaluation of these people at the beginning of the test. All they did was checked their blood sugar. That's it. I'm kidding about the extensive evaluation. They measured their blood sugar at the end of the 6.5 years. They said who became demented and who did not. And what they found was a perfect correlation between blood sugar and risk for dementia. Higher blood sugar, higher risk for dementia, in this case, 6.5 years later. But what was so profound about this study, and again, New England Journal of Medicine, I think we would all agree that's a respectable journal, what was found was that these were levels of blood sugar far below the range that we would use to characterize diabetes. These are almost normal, so-called normal blood sugar levels that are translating into higher risk for dementia. What does that mean to us? Number one, that uh, blood sugar threatens the brain. And number two, that we shouldn't be looking at normal levels of blood sugar as our goal, but rather we should attempt to define what is an optimal blood sugar level, not 100, which was the cutoff for normality uh, in this study. Because normal, normal is based on the population. If everybody's sick, that might be normal is sick. That's right. So step number one, what should you do today? What you should do today includes you should reassess your diet and look at how much you're consuming in terms of sugar and more simple carbohydrates and revolutionize your perspective on dietary fat. You know, uh, Dr. Hyman wrote a wonderful book called Eat Fat, Get Thin, which was very challenging for a lot of people because everyone became dialed in with the notion that for health and weight loss, you had to stop eating dietary fat. Hence, you know, this explosion of low-fat, no-fat foods and their popular portrayal in uh, media. Nothing is further from the truth scientifically, A and B. Nothing is further from the history of the human diet for as long as we've walked this planet. So step one is you've got to cut the carbs and cut the sugar dramatically. And there are so many resources uh, available for people. I mean, I talked about it five years ago in Grain Brain, reiterated it now in the revision. Dr. Hyman has talked about it, certainly. Robert Lustig has talked about it. There's so many books that are written that focus on this incredible toxic event uh, that occurs when we consume dietary sugar. Gary Taubes, another very popular author writing on this subject. So sugar's got to be in all of its forms, I might add. There's nothing... Uh, healthful about organic honey or maple syrup that comes from trees that have been blessed. It is sugar, end of story. And people have to be on the lookout for hidden sources of sugar, you know, in, in terms of flour, in terms of uh, their carbohydrates. A, B, 
welcome fat back to the table. Characterize the fat as being good or bad. Good fats, unprocessed fats, olive oil, avocado oil, avocados themselves, nuts, seeds, uh, wild fish, free-range beef, eggs. What a wonderful food, uh, eggs, but they've got to be free-range. So I think people are becoming very uh, understanding about what is the difference between a, a good fat versus a bad fat. The next thing that is certainly very powerful in terms of brain health and it means you have to buy something. You've got there's something very specific that I want your listeners to go out and buy. It's called a new pair of sneakers or athletic shoes. Call them what you want. But people have to get up and move. Why? Because study after study has demonstrated a very strong correlation between sedentarity, meaning not moving, and Alzheimer's risk. When we want to uh, look at those retrospective studies, it's very compelling. But now there have actually been interventional studies done, one by Dr. Erickson, collaborative group uh, at uh, UCLA with the University of Pittsburgh, demonstrating in a one-year period of time, two groups of individuals were uh, randomized. Well, one group was randomized into two groups. One group got a stretching program to do every day. The other group got a more aerobic program to do every day. And they measured three things. They measured their blood level of a certain chemical that we'll talk about in a moment called BDNF, which increases the growth of brain cells. They measured the actual size of their brain's memory center, and they actually measured their memory function. And what did they find? Across the board, those individuals who did some stretching but no, nothing really demanding had smaller memory centers, lower levels of this important chemical for the brain called BDNF, and also on MRI scanning, their memory centers shrunk during that one-year period. In contrast to those people who simply did aerobic exercise, who had better memory function, higher levels of BDNF, and their hippocampus, the memory processing center in the brain actually increased in size. Why might that be? What's well, no mystery. BDNF is increased in individuals who engage in physical exercise. Very straightforward. BDNF stimulates a process called neurogenesis, meaning the growth of new brain cells, specifically in the brain's memory center called the hippocampus. So it all fits together. If you cut your carbs, eat more fat, and get some physical exercise very regularly, I would say six times a week, minimum 20 minutes, get your heart rate up, you're already on a program that is absolutely going to help reduce, and quite dramatically, your risk for a disease for which there is no treatment called Alzheimer's. So, you know, this is the message that is not patentable. No one can own it, no one can put it into a pill and make billions of dollars selling it. And yet, this is a message that you know, the general public really isn't getting, you know, when you watch the evening news, you see advertisements for an Alzheimer's pill or something made from jellyfish or who knows what, like that's supposed to be your answer where people have the answer already. They just need to put this into play. And you're so great at helping them connect the dots in doing that. You know, every time I see a photo of you and your wife on Instagram, you're always outside, you're always running. There's always something you're doing, you're hiking and so you live and you literally walk the talk and you also are always posting different recipes, things that you actually eat yourself. When I look at these two things that you just talked about, cutting your carbs, cutting your sugar and getting that movement up, 
I notice a pattern on the questions that people send in to us on the podcast and in the series. They talk about their difficulties and their challenges. And what I notice is that often for a lot of them, how they start their morning sets the tone for the rest of their day. How they start their morning sets the tone for their day. And in this day and age, most people are eating dessert for breakfast. It already starts with like a high sugar, high carbohydrate diet. So (laughs) give us your morning routine. Tell us how you start the day and walk us through from the moment that you wake up, how you set the tone for how the rest of your day is going to show up. Well, I will. I will comment on that in just a moment. But, you know, I'm just thinking about this idea of our kids and, you know, in our generation, the idea of starting your day with that high carb breakfast. And it was really, it's a dietary shift, unlike anything that's ever occurred on the planet. And uh, certainly, you know, in many places, for example, in Europe, uh, that's not what happens. But, you know, to talk about the influence on industry was profound. I mean, mothers were told through advertisements in the 50s and 60s, certainly 60s and 70s for sure, that sugar uh, equated with energy. And you definitely wanted your kids to have energy when they went to school. So it really was the genesis of these high sugar, high simple carbohydrate breakfast ideas that became pervasive in Western cultures. And that we're doing our ultimate best right now to uh, unwind and unpack and in terms of their genesis. So people really understand where it came from, number one. Number two, why it's so damaging to brain health in the long run, but more importantly, at least as it relates to children and people who are working, how that type of breakfast is so compromising day-to-day, moment-to-moment in terms of brain function because you're providing this massive bolus of fuel in terms of blood sugar that rushes in, powers up the brain, immediately followed by a massive response in the form of insulin that does what to that blood sugar? It drives it down very quickly. So that by 10 o'clock in the morning, blood sugar plummets, and that's a powerful signal to the body and through the brain that food sources are no longer available. And people crave by mid-morning. They crave coffee and and carbohydrates and a, a cheese danish or whatever they can get their hands on in vivid contrast to people whose bodies are burning fat as a fuel And I liken this, the metaphor is burning uh, either gasoline thrown on the fire or an oil lamp that burns slowly and regularly and provides constant uh, light. So uh, to get to me personally, Mm. I generally don't eat till one, two in the afternoon. Uh, So, you know, we call the first meal of the day, what's it called? Break fast. And that's when I break this extended fast that uh, is on board since uh, seven o'clock or so the night before. How do I function in the morning? I do all my writing, uh, meditating, and exercising generally in the morning uh, without anything on board. My brain is powered by fat, and I'm hopeful that I'm lucid. Maybe you'll be the judge and your listeners as well. But the point is, you know, (laughs) we've learned since the work done by George Cahill in 1960 that fat and specifically ketones are absolutely a super fuel for brain cells. That when we power our bodies with fat and specifically allow our bodies to get into a state where we are metabolizing fat and creating these chemicals that we call ketones, your brain is super sharp, it is protected. We have offloaded this fundamental process I I talked about earlier called inflammation. We're reducing inflammation 
We are reducing the effect of damaging free radicals. We are preserving the health of our mitochondria, our energy-producing organelles within our brain cells. And we are even protecting our DNA. We are activating our longevity genes. So that's what happens when we don't eat each day until midday or even early in the afternoon or and or rather uh, we get into a a program of intermittent fasting or a ketogenic diet or a fasting mimicking diet that Dr. Walter Longo has talked about. All of these ideas focus on challenging the body and also allowing the body to begin to metabolize and mobilize its fat and also utilize the fat that's in our diets. Humans have depended upon dietary fat for our survival for as long as we have walked the planet. And make no mistake about it, and I think this is going to be a big point for your listeners, dietary fat is far more important than just serving as a robust source of calories. Dietary fat is uh, an event that changes the expression of our life code, our DNA. So when our bodies are burning fat, we have changed the playing field in terms of which parts of our DNA are active. We are shutting down gene pathways that would have otherwise made these damaging chemicals that lead to inflammation. We are enhancing the gene activity of those gene pathways that help our bodies produce protective antioxidants. We are amplifying gene pathways that are associated with lifespan enhancement. We're turning on the gene pathways that code for a chemical called BDNF, I mentioned it earlier, that enhances not just the growth of new brain cells, but the connection of one brain cell to the next, what we call synaptogenesis, the genesis creation of synapses so that our brain areas can communicate with each other, a fundamental aspect of learning. So this is the nuts and bolts of what a person can do in terms of making important lifestyle changes right now that can have a huge impact on longevity, on overall health, on weight loss, on energy, and certainly on protecting the brain and enhancing its function. Yeah, and a big part of it is that, you know, you have been doing this for such a long time that you are firmly in this routine. And for people who are starting, whose bodies are used to that sugar rush and maybe that addiction and that craving, they can follow a plan like the plans you have in your book, Grain Brain, which I know you're celebrating an anniversary on, to slowly begin to transition in that direction. What they're going to start to notice, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening today that are like, but I'm going to be so hungry in the morning if I waited till later on to eat. But when you switch towards eating fat, you start to change and your body has the fuel that it needs to run and that hunger doesn't come. Can you talk about a little bit of that transitionary period? How long have you seen, if somebody's listening today and they're dependent and they're sugary breakfast, morning, muffin, oatmeal, that sort of stuff, maple syrup, and they want to get to the place where you're in, what has been your experience, both working with patients in the past and just readers from your book? How long does that transition usually take? And I know everyone's well, I'm glad different. you ended on that. I know everyone's different because that's certainly true. And there is a transition that has to happen. For some people, it's a day or two. And for some, it may take as long as a couple of weeks. That is certainly the longest I've seen for people who truly dedicate to the program. And more and more people are doing it. If you Google search or go to Google Trends, rather, and look at uh, the term ketogenic, you'll see that the searches for that term have increased threefold in just the past one year. 
So it's gaining a lot of interest and with very, very good reason. First, it is basically the type of diet humans have eaten for 99.9% of our time on this planet. So we have been on a ketogenic diet and no one called it that, but it was what we did because we didn't have access to carbohydrates. In fact, that only started just yesterday, just yesterday when we developed agriculture. Uh, and suddenly there was this resource of carbs, call it what it is, that allows us to grow foods that are high in carbs and even beyond that, process these foods and make sugar out of them, which is certainly even worse. And that has become much more amplified over the past 200 years and is having profound health consequences associated with it. Uh, but to get back to the, the question on the table right now, and that is the transition. And with dedication, the transition can happen. And if people stick with it, they are rewarded, even in the short term, in such a way that they will continue, rewarded by clarity, by better sleep, by looking better, which is you know a vanity thing, but helps it motivate people, and by actually having less hunger. So day one, if you're used to having that croissant with a glass of orange juice and who knows what else at breakfast and a similar lunch uh, and think you're doing better because now you had a salad and instead of coffee, you're having a frappuccino or something, um, if, if that's your nature, then it's going to be clearly much more difficult for you. Will you crash? Well, you might not crash, but you're going to have a tough time with it. We make it easier uh, for people by adding to their programs uh, sources of ketones or at least precursors that are then turned into ketones so that their transition period is already able to experience the benefits of being in ketosis even before their bodies have made the shift. Let me explain that a little bit further. By adding in something called MCT oil, or a less effective would-be coconut oil, but still worthwhile, then your body is able to produce ketones right off the bat, uh, even before you have fully shifted your metabolism, or even before you have done a fast, or even before you've really cut down on your sugar and carbohydrates. So that's a real important transition idea, and that is to add in some organic MCT oil, you know, a teaspoon or two. Uh, I take one tablespoon now twice a day, but I think people should ease into their MCT oil over the course of a week or two. But MCT uh, bypasses to a significant degree, well, totally, in fact, the requirement that the body has in terms of creating ketones from body fat, which uh, turns out to be far more complicated and challenging as opposed to making ketones directly from taking MCT oil. So yes, once you're on a ketogenic diet, your ketones will come from mobilizing body fat and from the fats that you consume. But that's the process that has to be amped up over time that, you know, the machinery has to be brought on online to start utilizing body fat. You can get into ketosis very quickly by adding uh, something like MCT oil to your regimen. And hey, that's something that's available in any health food store or who knows, online uh, very easily.
Um, I want to talk a little bit about ketogenic diet. We've done a few full episodes on it, but it's always great to get different opinions on it. So do you see any benefit for the term, you know, carb cycling? Do you follow a strict uh, ketogenic diet? Because uh, sometimes people hear these things and they dive fully into it and they're not always aware of the different, you know, nuances that are there. So when you talk about the benefits of the ketogenic diet, help us understand your perspective. Uh, absolutely. And I think the word nuances is in fact very operational here. Why? Because there's some very important uh, nuances. So let's go beyond calling the nuances. Let's call them fundamentals. I have to gain attention. Otherwise, people will not feel well and do well on the ketogenic diet. And we'll get to the carb cycle in, in just a moment. But I think that you know some of the fundamentals here are beyond question. I think that the early adopters get into problems mostly involving their digestion when they go keto. And that is, for the most part, we're talking about constipation. And it is, it's a real issue. I mean, people don't feel well because they're constipated and who wants to be constipated all the time? And the reason that happens is because of misinterpretation of the recommendation. The recommendation is to reduce your carbohydrates substantially, but to be certain that you're still getting adequate fiber, which by definition is a carbohydrate. So what does it mean? It means that, yeah, you want to stop the simple carbs and the processed carbs and all of that for sure. But you don't want to go carb free because if you go carb free, you're not going to be getting dietary fiber. Therein lies the reason that people have these digestive issues early on when they go keto. They've cut out their dietary fiber thinking, well, these vegetables are carbs. I'm not going to eat them. That's the worst thing you could do. Why? A, you need just the bulk of this dietary fiber for uh, appropriate bowel movements. But B, no less important, perhaps more importantly, is that you need dietary fiber to nurture your gut bacteria. You really depend on healthy gut bacteria to achieve all of the goals that I have enumerated already. That is feeling better, losing weight, having more energy, helping your body with detoxification, etc., Gut bacteria are playing the role front and center in terms of those processes. So by all means, you're on a ketogenic diet. You want to make sure you're getting good sources, not just of dietary fiber, but of dietary prebiotic fiber, i.e. that type of fiber that you consume that will nurture your gut bacteria. And there are wonderful food sources of that. Jicama, which is Mexican yam. I like dandelion greens, most greens, in fact, kale, for example, garlic, onions, leeks, Jerusalem artichoke. These are all wonderful natural sources of good prebiotic fiber that nurtures the gut bacteria. There are wonderful organic non-GMO sources of prebiotic fiber that I tend to recommend to individuals, especially early on when they're getting into the keto program. And these are dietary fibers that are derived from things like acacia gum or baobab fruit that are in every health food store in the country. You know, people seem to have the notion that getting on a ketogenic diet is sort of like Atkins redux and that all you got to do to be in ketosis is to eat eggs, bacon, and pork rinds and meat all day long, and next thing you know, you're going to lose weight, and you know, you're going to be in great shape. That is categorically not what this is all about. It's certainly not what our ancestors ate. And you know, you can be, for example, fully vegetarian 
and get yourself into ketosis. Dr. Will Cole uh, wrote a wonderful book called Ketotarian. I wrote the, the blurb on the cover about why this is a wonderful approach for people who choose to be vegetarian. I'm not a vegetarian. Mostly what I eat is plant-based, however, but I certainly eat eggs and fish and uh, grass-fed beef as well. And I use a little bit of organic milk. But, uh, you know, the notion that this is a diet where you're eating meat all day is really not in line with what we and others are recommending. So I think it does take a little bit of finesse and a little bit of education. I have a an online book that's free on my website, drpromoter.com, that is all about getting into a ketogenic uh, state of being. And so your listeners can go there and get that. Mm. So I think, you know, there's some important things to think about. It's not just about eating those foods and hoping for the best. Fiber is critical. If you choose to be vegetarian and get into ketosis, super cool, you know, go for it. But being vegetarian raises its own issues in terms of being complete. Vegetarians have a very few sources of vitamin B12 now that our vegetables are washed of their dirt. We Vegetarians have not very good sources of vitamin D and certainly don't have good sources of DHA uh, either and oftentimes might do with a good mineral supplement. So there are vegetarian sources for those issues that need to be paid attention to in their diets. I don't know how prevalent vegetarian vitamin D would be, but that said, I guess you can just get out in the sun each day with exposing your skin. But so my point is that being vegetarian puts you at greater risk for vitamin D deficiency, B12 deficiency, which is really important for the brain. Uh, and uh, certainly uh, magnesium based on the quality of the soils in which our food is grown these days. Thank you for covering those nuances. One more question on the nuances. Any thoughts on, you know, there's DNA tests that are out there like DNA diet and a few others that talk about whether or not genetically people can handle more fat or less fat. You know, some of them test for like APOA2. Any opinion on that? If somebody does one of these tests and it comes back and says that, okay, you might do better with a little less saturated fat in your diet. Is there some truth to that? Is there not truth to that? Or do we need more information? I would say that with almost 100% certainty that everybody based upon his or her, not necessarily their, well, certainly their genome, but more importantly, their SNPs or their uh, nuances of their genes that are highly variable, that everybody, uh, that, that no two people would do best on the same diet. Most people, I think, by and large, broad stroke recommendations can follow the programs as we recommend them. We know that there are certain gene uh, polymorphisms that uh, require attention in terms of some nuances of nutrition. Uh, I'll tell you about my genome and what I learned about myself by having my genome sequenced and how it changed my approach to my personal nutrition. First, I learned that I have some issues in terms of how I am able to utilize certain B vitamins. I have what's called MTHFR polymorphism, and I am strong for that. Homozygous meaning I have two of some of the important genes affected. And what does it mean for me? It means I have to have a methylated form of B vitamin in order to be more adept at protecting my DNA, for instance, in order to help my body reduce the damaging effects of a chemical called homocysteine as well, allowing my body to use that pathway to create higher levels of glutathione, for example. I would not have known that had I not had my genome sequenced. I've also learned that I have some polymorphisms or 
variations maybe compared to the next person in terms of my ability to gain the benefits of vitamin D. So I have some vitamin D receptor uh, polymorphisms that, that would lead me to believe that I need to perhaps a little bit higher level of vitamin D than the next person. There are polymorphisms that relate to whether a person would gain a lot of response or not so much response from being in ketosis. For example, one of the so-called Alzheimer's genes, although it truly isn't per se, because when you say that, it means you have the gene, you're going to get the disease and nothing could be further from the truth, is called APOE4. And several studies have demonstrated that the effectiveness of being on a ketogenic diet in terms of brain function, less effective in individuals who carry the APOE4 allele. So the answer to your question is, I think it's quite clear that nuances of our genome and certainly of our polymorphisms, as you will learn if you have a 23andMe, definitely influence our ability to respond to specific changes in our diets. But I think it's worth learning about. Uh, I just indicated two important things I learned about my nutrition uh, based upon having my genome sequenced. You know, I, I did a 23andMe for, I forget what I paid, $91 or something. And then uh, I used one of the online uh, sites to further uh, analyze that data and make recommendations for me. Do you feel comfortable sharing which site you use? I know people are always looking. There's a bunch of different ones that are out there Yeah, I, I, that you dumped your uh, data in. I had the opportunity to read the book Dirty Genes. So I went to that website and learned all about you know what it meant in my genome, how effective that is. I, I think people have certainly challenged that. As you know, having asked that question, there are a lot of sites out there, but it, that one worked for me. That's great. We just did a podcast with Dr. Ben Lynch that will have been live by this time. So if you're listening to this, you can jump into that podcast after listening to Dr. David Perlmutter to learn more about the genome. I want to congratulate you. Grain Brain has been out for five years, and I read that you have sold over a million copies. And I think it's going back to our original conversation. It's such a testament to, to how hungry the population is on these subjects, the fact that people want to devour this information and figure out. In a way, I almost think about we're in this perfect storm. We're in this perfect storm where people are getting so much sicker. And because they're getting so much sicker, the demand for answers is so much stronger. You know, on that topic, you talked about Alzheimer's a little earlier. In the Broken Brain docuseries, there's the topic of Parkinson's that we didn't get a chance to touch on with you. Can you touch on Parkinson's and what we know based on lifestyle and its ability to influence our likelihood of developing Parkinson's later on. I will. And, you know, it's interesting that so much of our discussion that we've had so far absolutely relates to this discussion of Parkinson's as well. What we know about Parkinson's is that it shares many risk factors with Alzheimer's disease and certainly at its most fundamental level, it is an inflammatory disorder. We control our body's inflammation by controlling our blood sugar. We control our blood sugar by making the right food choices. One study that appeared in the journal Neurology just a couple of months ago uh, came out of England, and it looked at uh, two million diabetics and compared them to six million non-diabetics, in other words, six million controls, and what did they find? that diabetics had a far greater risk of becoming Parkinson's patient. And it especially held true with uh, individuals who were younger, i.e. age 25 to 44. If you were 
a diabetic early in life like that, I mean, we used to call it adult onset diabetes, but now it's simply type 2 because we're seeing it in children for crying out loud. But the risk of becoming a Parkinson's patient, if you were diabetic in those younger years, gets back to a conversation you and I had earlier about inflammation. Risk has increased 3.8, almost fourfold. Wow. This is a disease for which we have no treatment. There are treatments to manage the symptoms of Parkinson's, but there's nothing to treat the underlying disease process. I'm a neurologist. It's what I do. I wish there was a treatment to treat the underlying disease, but we're only treating the smoke and ignoring the fire. And how incredible it is that the word inflammation, inflam, is the Latin for fire, inflame. So uh, it truly is is the fire that happens uh, in the brain. One really interesting study was uh, recently published in JAMA Neurology, the Journal of the American Medical Association, especially journal uh, in neurology. And it revealed something I think very interesting, and that is they looked at people who had inflammatory bowel disease, and they looked at 150,000 of these people and compared them with over 700,000 people who did not have inflammatory bowel disease. They found that the risk of developing Parkinson's disease, if you have IBD, is 28% increased. But if you were on medication for your inflammatory bowel disease to reduce the inflammatory chemicals from being produced, your risk was actually decreased by 78%. My point is, you know, the study was, I think, published with the idea that, well, maybe we should treat <laughs> Parkinson's patients with these drugs that we're currently seeing on television to treat Crohn's disease. I mean, that's where it was going. But for me, what I want to portray in terms of what the study shows is that Parkinson's disease, like Alzheimer's, has at its core a mechanism involving inflammation. We can turn down inflammation right now by changing our lifestyle choices, by eating less carbs and sugar, eating higher fat, and getting some exercise. It's really, really that simple. If we wanna get into the real depths of the biochemistry and pathophysiology, sure. But I really think that it's important to paint the broad strokes here, because it's the broad strokes that are getting global populations uh, into trouble. It's not the minutia of a particular species of bacterium that is over or underrepresented in the gut that causes the problem. You know, these changes in the gut bacteria are a manifestation of our dietary choices. When the gut bacteria go awry and increase our production of inflammation, it's again getting back to the foods that we eat. You know, who knew? Incredible. You know, one of my favorite places that I've bookmarked on uh, on my computer to go to to look at all this uh, research is the science page on your website, you, you know, under learn, then you can click on science. You're so great at collecting all these different publications that are out there because I think sometimes people get excited. They listen to this podcast. They read different books that are out there and they go and talk to maybe their traditional uh, practitioner who even if they might be open-minded, just may not be aware. And sometimes the response is, well, there's no evidence out there to support these things. And I think a big part of your work is that, guys, there's evidence. It's just that you may not be aware. So I'm going to highlight it. And tell me about how that relates to this upcoming collection that you're doing called The Microbiome and, and the Brain. Let me tell you a couple of thoughts that came to mind. When the conquistadors uh, from Spain first arrived in Central America, their huge boats 
were so different from anything that the indigenous population had ever experienced that they couldn't actually see them. They just, it was so far off of their, out of their reality that they were invisible. And I think to some degree, the same thing goes on in medical literature that, you know, you pick up a journal of the American Medical Association, the journal, and there's an article there indicating, you know, written by one of our colleagues, for example, David Ludwig publishes a lot in JAMA, talking about what is the effect of a certain dietary change, et cetera. And I'd say that by and large, the mainstream practitioners don't see it. It's invisible. It goes by unnoticed. And yet it's not because this information isn't there. Every study thus far in our conversation today that you and I have talked about has been quoted from a highly respected peer-reviewed medical journal. This stuff is real and this stuff is published, but I think the reason we don't hear about it is because there's not a media machine behind it that will get it to the mainstream. Although, if a new drug is developed, my goodness, everybody's talking about it. It's on the evening news. This new drug is going to cure Alzheimer's disease. Oh, really? Uh, How how do we know that? Well, it already cured Alzheimer's disease in uh, a mouse. And so, you know, some people think, oh, I can't wait. Well, how do I get my hands on it? Well, maybe 20 years from now, if you're lucky and if it proves not to harm people, which I think is certainly uh, one area of uh, bioceutical research that uh, has maintained its integrity. But, you know, truthfully, uh, in moving forward, what is it all about? Uh, you know, the mission here is one of continuing to get this information out. And you mentioned the science section of our website. I want to let people know that if you go there looking for the science section, you won't find it because as you just mentioned, it's under the learn tab. You gotta go to learn and then scroll down, then you get science, which is fully searchable. But that's really, I think, why we do what we do. The word doctor means teacher. And it's up to us to get this information to everybody and then let the informed consumer then make her or his choice in terms of what they want to do with respect to the information and whether they decide they're going to embrace it or not. Dr. Perlmutter, when it comes to your own health and your brain health in particular, what are like three non-negotiables for you in your day, in your week, when you look at habits, when you look at things that you do that puts you in the best place and best space for performance, for showing up in the world, for giving your best to the people that you love, your wife, your family, what are three non-negotiables for you? I don't want to limit it to three, but uh, so I'll rank them. And I guess if you have to pick three, they'll be on the top of the list. And I think that I would say getting uh, adequate sleep is critical, fundamental. Certainly daily exercise for me is critical. The diet that we've talked about, which is ketogenic, is fundamental. Embracing gratitude on a daily basis is absolutely on my list loving those around us and doing your very best to extend that to even people who you don't know, I think is critical, especially as we move forward. But, you know, to be more specific, as it relates to brain health, I mean, um, holding, holding my father while he died of Alzheimer's disease was, um, you know, it was, it was a moment for me, I think, of certainly of loss. And as I process it now, you know, a couple years out, you know, the loss part, uh, I've learned to deal with, but beyond that, you know, we try to read into our life experiences, meaning and beyond meaning, then motivation. So, you know, I, I clearly 
at an academic level uh, and a personal emotional level know what this disease is all about. And whatever I could do to spare people that anguish is a part of life mission. And truthfully, you know, it is less the issue with respect to the patient than it is in, for the individual who love that patient. They're the ones who, who truly suffer because as individuals get towards moderate and end-stage Alzheimer's, they're fairly uh, not engaged in the issue that is at hand. So again, it, it's a situation that is at epidemic proportion. We are right now globally spending a trillion dollars on the care of Alzheimer's patients. That is the same market value as Apple. So it is, it's mm. devastating. And I was asked uh, several months ago to speak to the World Bank and International Monetary Fund on the impacts of Alzheimer's globally. And I'm glad that that was the topic because it allowed me to talk not only about the monetary in, uh, impacts, which I, I knew that's what they wanted, but beyond that, the emotional impacts as well, which I know uh, affected uh, everybody not only in the room, but in the 50 nations where my presentation was uh, simulcasted or broadcasted. So, yeah, we can talk about the financial impacts, but the emotional impacts, I think, are important as well. And just the notion that overall, you know, long before we're getting to a place of a specific disease that we then call Alzheimer's based on the various uh, diagnostic uh, ideas, parameters, by and large, the westernization of lifestyle that's happening globally is dramatically affecting brain function in people around the globe. As people adopt our Western cosmopolitan lifestyle that they think is really a mark of their, uh, their sudden affluence, uh, it's, it's really leaving its indelible mark on their cognitive function. So globally, cognitive function is now declining mechanistically through the issues we've talked about by powering the fuel with sugar instead of fat, by having a diet higher in sugar and carbohydrates that increases inflammation that's damaging to the brain and the heart and the immune system. And so, you know, this is something that really needs attention on multiple levels, certainly well beyond the, uh, the financial issues in terms of chronic degenerative conditions being the number one cause of death on the planet. I want to circle back to where we got started and I want to ask you, what's your hope for the future? What's your hope that, you know, this next generation that's coming in, that's standing on the shoulders of your work and the incredible people like yourself that are doing their best to put this message out there, explain the science, both as an academic, as a physician, as a researcher, as a writer, as a speaker. What's your hope for the future? For people who are listening here, what do you see needs to happen so that this becomes a global movement? We'll explore my hope, which doesn't uh, necessarily align with my perception in terms of where we're going. My hope would be, so conditionally, my hope would be uh, that far more emphasis is placed on the information that is readily at hand that shows us that our lifestyle choices have a dramatic impact in terms of our health. That's the simple message that needs to be spread around the world. Our lifestyle choices right now are controlled by media, advertising, and multinational corporations that want to sell their wares to uh, individuals who are unaware of the fact that they're being bombarded 
in obvious media, but also more surreptitiously through social media in terms of their choices, especially as it relates to their food. My hope would be that more attention that, you know, the importance of what we just talked about would rise not necessarily to the top, but at least parallel to the level of the influence of media and the corporate world in terms of influencing our choices. We're at a huge disadvantage right now, and this is not new. Uh, we, uh, you know, are we're very taken by the Journal of the American Medical Association publication three years ago, then uh, recapitulated in the New York Times, that demonstrated how profoundly the sugar industry was able to influence what was appearing in most well-respected medical literature like the New England Journal of Medicine that was very favorable towards sugar and derogatory towards dietary fat. That was an active intervention to change the outcome of that election. In other words, the election of what foods should I eat, but in this case, the election of what a doctor should choose to say to his or her patients. And what the narrative became for the first time in human history was that dietary fat was bad, which translates into eat more carbs and sugar. The campaign worked uh, very effectively, and it changed the nutritional playing field in the United States and then spread to westernized countries, uh, western cultures around, you know, developed countries. And then ultimately now is this uh, push globally for people to adopt this diet lower in fat and higher in carbohydrates. So uh, I've watched that happen and it's continuing to occur and it's continuing now to occur in very underhanded, surreptitious ways. And we talk about trying to buy people's votes or influence their votes. But beyond that, far more pervasive is influence people's buying habits. Um, that's what has great value, and uh, that is the you know central approach uh, of marketing. Uh, always has been, but now it's being done so underhandedly through social media channels that the influence is pervasive and global, and we're seeing you know how that is playing out. So my wish would be then that we, like you, this you know forum that we're using right now, would get far wider exposure and allow people to make the choices on their own, having seen both sides of the issue. Right now, most people see only one side of the issue, and that is, oh, this food is convenient, or it's, or this uh, actor or actress looks so good because they're eating this uh, breakfast cereal, or you name it, or, you know, even worse, even more tragic is how young people are influenced, you know, six and seven-year-olds by cartoon characters who uh, placed at eye level in the grocery store to get them to eat these high-carbohydrate breakfasts, which do nothing but deserve them in terms of their school performance. You know, that's, it's underhanded. It's not appropriate. It's not the right thing. It's morally the wrong thing to do. Now, I'm a realist, and uh, that would be my hope, but as a realist, I don't see that this paradigm is changing in any uh, dramatic way anytime soon. But again, that serves to challenge those of us who want to see these changes occur. It serves to challenge us. I mean, I'm meeting next week with the executive level people, the decision makers at a company uh, that is the world's largest purveyor of food. <laughs> So uh, hopefully mm. we can have some discussion, dialogue about why this really matters and, you know, what turns out to be valuable, not for the stockholders as much as the shareholders. And we are all the shareholders in that story. 
Dr. Perlmutter, I want to thank you for all your incredible work on the note of gratitude. I've just been such a big fan of everything that you've done, the books that you've written, and what your commitment and dedication is. I know you just shared that you're a realist, and yet I see this this component that's there, which is you are steadfast moving forward, making an impact, and doing the things supporting that hopefully I get a chance and other people listening get a chance to continue to build on. And I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing the latest science and helping take these concepts that are out there and connecting the dots for us so we can turn them into practical changes into our life. We truly appreciate you. Well, Drew, I, I appreciate this and you know, obviously every opportunity, every venue uh, and I would say that, you know, we got to stay in the batter's box and keep watching for that perfect pitch. Now that uh, Grain Brain revision has come out, the five-year anniversary, I, I just am really taken. And what we did in that book was we really looked at what's happened since that book was published and how the science has absolutely validated what we said five years ago, which at that time, you know, certainly, as you mentioned, uh, you know, was was – well, pioneer and confronted by you were by, pioneer in that space, you know, by mainstream by saying, look, you know, we're eating too much sugar, carbohydrates, gluten might well be an issue. And it's nice to see that how science has moved forward to validate what we've what our contentions were. And I want to make one other point that I think is valuable, and that is it's important for people who are following this evolution in our understanding of these concepts to understand that the messaging may well change moving forward. And that is actually a good thing, you know, to say, well, you know, I remember years ago they, they told us this and now they're saying that. That whole change in the narrative with time is a really, really good thing. It means that those of us who are keeping our fingers on the pulse of the evolving science are changing our messaging to keep up with the very latest understanding of things. So we don't want to lock in. We want to be uh, able to be available for changing recommendations as we move forward in time. So will this narrative change with time? I'm hopeful uh, that it will because that's an indication of making good progress. Ah, it's so true. Grain Brain translated in, I think, 30-plus languages, number one bestseller, over a million copies sold. I'm super excited for the anniversary edition. It's one of the top brain books that I recommend to people. If you're listening today and you're looking for a place to start, this is the book that is your place to start. And my favorite translation is the title that you had for the book in Italian. I think it translates into The Intelligent Diet, and I couldn't think of a better... Yes, I have it. Actually, I have it. It's the same translation in Portuguese. La Dieta Inteligencia, and uh, that, in contrast to the translation of the title in German, Dom Brot, and I'm not going to, uh, this is a family show, so I don't want to translate what that means, <laughs> but it's dumb as um, something, dumb as crap. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And I, I just want to read off again, Dr. Hyman's quote for a lot of his fans that are listening here for Grain Brain, the definitive instruction book for the care and feeding of your brain. Grain Brain explains why our brains are under siege with the skyrocketing rates of depression, dementia, ADHD, autism, and more. If you want to boost your brain power, keep your memory and lift your mood and energy. Dr. Perlmutter is your guide. I couldn't have said it better than Dr. Hyman. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Drew. You're the best. Uh, thank you again. Check the show notes for the link to it. And for those that are on the email, check out the link to the anniversary edition of Grain Brain. Dr. Perlmutter, thank you. We appreciate you. 
as well. Bye for now. Bye for now. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.